You're listening to a message from Victory Dumaguete. We are on the second installment of our series called Salt and Light. We are looking into the book of Isaiah. But it's not really a study of the entire book of Isaiah. Because if we endeavor to do that, it might take us five years to finish all the chapters in the book of Isaiah. So we have selected different chapters in the book of Isaiah as we look into the role of God's covenant people to the world. So we will look into the second one, and for this, we will have to look into an entire chapter. I'd like for all of us to turn our Bibles for a while to Isaiah chapter 3. We are on the third chapter of the book of Isaiah. I'm going to read the entire chapter. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply all support of bread and all support of water. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician, the expert in charms, and I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. And youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of my people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look in their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. For they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with them. For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. O my people, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders, the princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdress, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings, the nose rings, the fistal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness, and instead of a belt, a rope, and instead of a well-set hair, baldness, and instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty, your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament, 
and mourn empty, she shall sit on the ground. This isn't your first time to read Isaiah chapter 3. You've read Isaiah chapter 3 and Isaiah chapter 4 already. We don't really have the time to cover the entire chapter, but there's something that we're doing here. We'll look into the essential aspects of this chapter. So before that, there's something I've observed during summertime. I don't know if you've ever observed this. Our home is along the national highway. So every single day, there's a minimum of four ambulances that pass by the national highway every single day. But what's intriguing is during summertime, it's not just ambulances, but it's also fire trucks. Now, I don't know with you, but I have observed that every time summertime arrives, like we are in summertime right now, there are more cases of fire in the city or in the region. Well, of course, I'll pray that all of your homes are safe during these seasons of the year. But there's something that intrigues me about news about fire. I've realized that every time there's a news about fire, whether on TV or on radio, the reporters would always mention about the cost that was lost. Some would say, oh, uh, there was a fire in Bagakai. They would say like 6 million pesos worth of property was lost. I don't know if you've ever observed that, but you know, reporters would always talk about the cost that was taken by the fire. So it intrigues me thinking about that. And looking at this verse right now, I realize that if I start reading this, I realize that there were several things that were taken away from Judah and Jerusalem. So here's what, how we're going to do this. We will look into two aspects of this passage. We will look into the first few verses, verses 1 down to verse 7. And then we will look into the last few verses, which are, verses 17 down to verse 26, and we will realize that there is a resemblance between the two. Let me start with the first one. Look at this. Isaiah chapter 3, verses 1 down to verse 7. So this is verses 1 down to verse 7. It says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and Judah. You've learned this last week. The letter addressed Judah and Jerusalem, isn't it? Here's what God is going to do. He's going to take away from Jerusalem and Judah, support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them and the people will oppress one another. Everyone is fellow and everyone is neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father saying, You have a cloak, you shall be your leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out saying, I will not be a healer in my house. There is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of my people. So that's what we have in verses 1 down to verse 7. Interestingly, if you look at chapter 3, it ends up pretty much the same. Look at this one. Verses 17 down to verse 26, here's what it says. Therefore, the Lord will strike with his cab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away, look at this, the finery of the anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, 
the signet rings, the nose strings, fistal robes, the mantles, the cloak, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, the veil, and all of these things. In short, if this happens in our day right now, magsasaraang Shopee. That's essentially what it means. So it gives us a picture that something is something is happening here. There is a common denominator that we would see in that. We would understand that the Lord God of hosts, He Himself is taking away these things from them. Are we on the same page now? We see that in verses 1 to 7 and verses 17 down to verse 26. I want to run us through a series of questions. The manner at which we're going to understand the sermon is for us to run through a series of questions that would aid us in understanding our passage. So it begins with this first question. What is the Lord taking away from His people in the said verses? Verses 1 down to verse 7, verses 17 down to verse 26. The answer to that question is a lot, isn't it? Right? And to get it in the simplest way of understanding it, here's what I have here. The Lord, basing on those verses, is taking away things which are very important to Jerusalem and Judah, things they cannot live without, things they depend on. The Lord here isn't just taking away their idols. To my understanding, the Lord here. Take note of this one, and let me just make it relevant. The Lord here in this passage in Isaiah chapter 3 is taking away both essentials and non-essentials. Essentials like water, essentials like food. And He's taking away non-essentials that the people of Judah have deemed essentials, like jewelries, adornments, headdresses, and all of these things. The Lord is taking all of that away. That which is important to Jerusalem and Judah, things they cannot live without, and things they, they depend on. You would notice that God is taking away both essentials and non-essentials. And the one who is taking away all of this is the Lord Himself. Every time we lose something, our initial thinking is, oh, it's the devil who took this away because the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But in this passage right here, we understand that it is the Lord himself who's taking away all of these things. So allow that thought to sink in for a while. It is the Lord himself who took away all of these things. So before we proceed, I'd like to outline two things for us. I feel like we have to start by looking into this verse. First, in his sovereignty, God can... Take away things from his people because he is the giver of all things. In fact, in his sovereignty, he need not explain things to us. Amen? God can take away things from his people, him being the giver of all things. In his sovereignty, he can do that. Secondly, in his foreknowledge, in his omniscience, when God takes away something, it always comes with a purpose. God does not take away something without a reason. God doesn't take away something from His people na trip-trip lang or is a prank. It's not like that. God will not take away something without 
a good reason. So first, in His sovereignty, He can. That settles the deal. In His foreknowledge, we have to understand that there is a reason behind this. Why have I lost it? There's a purpose behind it. There's a reason behind that. And in fact, there are several reasons why things are taken away from us. One could be it is actually for our protection. Sometimes the things that we have are the very things that we delight on. We do not understand that these are the very things that will destroy our life. It could be for our protection. Sometimes it could be because of our idolatrous relationship with that something. That it has become an idol in our life. It has replaced God in our life. And therefore, God will have to remove that away from us for us to rededicate ourselves to the one true God. At times, things are taken away from us for us to exhibit a growing dependency and trust, not on the stuff that we have, but on God himself. So at the end of the day, we don't really know because it is God who has a foreknowledge of everything. So I'm laying that down. I'm saying those two things first to lay a foundation in our minds and in our spirit. That in His sovereignty, in His foreknowledge, these things can happen to us. Now, let's go to the context of Judah. Let's go to the context of Jerusalem. Now we see here in verses 1 down to verse 7, in verses 17 down to verse 26, the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem have lost so many things, essentials and non-essentials. So the next question now here is this. We ask, in the context of Judah, why is the Lord taking away the things they depend on for a living? Or perhaps the question is, why was the Lord taking away what Judah depended on? So the first question that we answered a while ago was what? And we have a list of all of these things. Perhaps we'll have time to look into that later. The next question here is why, which I think is the most important aspect of this. Why is the Lord taking away from Judah things that they have depended on? So I, I want to give you the reasons littered all over Isaiah chapter 3. So kanina we have verses 1 down to verse 7, verses 17 down to verse 26. In the middle of this, we find several reasons why. I'd like for you to buckle up and we will look into the reason. Here's the first one. Isaiah chapter 3 verse 8. The reason why things were taken away from them was first, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen. The things that you have depended on, I'm going to take this away from you because you, Judah, have stumbled and you, Jerusalem, have fallen. It's not enough to say it that way. We ask in what sense did they stumble and fall? In what sense, okay, uh, we have fallen. In what sense did that happen? In what sense did we stumble and fall? Isaiah gives the answer here. Because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying His glorious presence. In what sense did Judah and Jerusalem stumble and fall? Because of two things. I want you to understand this. Their speech and their deeds. Both their deeds and their words dishonored God. Why is it important? I want you to understand this. Now, to all of us here, what we can take from this is, yes, it's true, this is not something that is addressed to us, but we get the principle from this. We understand, oh, speech also matters to God. My words 
to my friends actually matter to the Lord. That's what I get here. So it gives us a picture that we are commanded to glorify God by what we say just as much as by what we do. In fact, you know, Jesus himself said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every, every, every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Well, that's interesting. God is very clear, victory dumagete, that he's not just weighing your thoughts. He's not just weighing the things that you do or the things that you did not do. God weighs the words that come out of our mouth. I'd like for us to embrace how important, how urgent, how substantial, how serious this is. Look at this. That's not the end of the verse. Here's what it says. It says here, your words and your deeds, look at this. It defies God's glorious presence. Catch it? You've fallen, you've stumbled, because both your words and your deeds have defied the glorious presence of God in your life. Let me explain it this way. The idea here is what we call kuram deyo. When you say kuram deyo, this is what it means. We live in the presence of God under the authority of God. Catch it? You're cooking your adobo, perfectly good. You're cooking your sotanghon, your bihon. You're playing golf. You're playing billiards. Whatever you do, I want you to understand this. God is not just found in the vicinity of a worship service. While you're driving, while you're signing documents, you live in the presence of God, but not just that, under the authority of God. The idea of Kuramdeo should bring people into a new level of consciousness that what I think, do, and say matter to God because these things are laid bare before God. This is like the hinge here. It says here, by their words and deeds, they have defied His glorious presence. The word defy here simply means they have Provoke God. So here's another question. In what sense do they provoke God? What do they provoke God to? They provoke God to anger. Thinking about Kuramdeo, we live in the presence of God. So it gives me a picture that then, if that is the case, if I use hurtful, provocative, belittling words to someone, I provoke God to anger. I defy the glorious presence of God. Why is that so? Because like what I said last week, every man bears with him the imago Dei, the image of God. Every person is valuable to God and the words that you heap on someone matter to the Lord. This is applicable in a spousal relationship. The relationship between the husband and the wife, the words that the husband will tell the wife and the words that the wife will tell to the husband matter to the Lord. Amen? 
This is extremely important in parental relationship. The words that the parents, the mom, the dad will tear their kids in the fits of annoyance and anger matter to the Lord. In fact, if I might say, if we belittle, we speak against, we heap curses on someone, we defy the presence of God, we provoke God to anger. This is what happened here. Wait, there's more. That's not the only reason why God took away things from them. Here's another reason. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. The idea here, if you look at this, for the look on their faces bears witness against them. If you look at Isaiah chapter 9, the first part of Isaiah chapter 9, the idea here is that their habitual sin, their persistence in their sin has caused a what? It has made a mark even on their countenance. It's like if a person persists in his sin, it will affect even his physical countenance. In the 20th century, there was a science called physiognomy in which crime detectives would determine a person's behavior just basing it on the look on their faces. In this aspect right here, it could be that the countenance of their face, I mean, the things that you see in their face is they are sinning, and guess what? Because they sinned like Sodom, like what we said last week, they have a smirk in their face. It's like, okay, I'm going to continue sinning. I don't really care what you tell me, what people will tell me about it. Don't really care about church people. I'm a backslidden person. Don't really care what victory people will tell me. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. That's what we have here. And that was what was happening in the people of Judah during that time. That their sin, their habitual sin, has already affected even their physical countenance. Do you realize that to the degree that you obey the Lord is also the degree that you will manifest His glory in you? That's why I'm not joking when I tell people that when you become a Christian, lalo kang gumaganda at gumagwapo. I'm not joking when I say that. I mean, without adobe, compare your photos without filters from 15 years ago to your photos right now. And you would see a shift during the time when you became a Christian. Not just that, it says here, they proclaim their sin like Sodom. This is what we've talked about last week. They proclaim, okay, ang pinipreach nila, yung sin nila like Sodom, and they do not hide it. And I did mention last week that every time a nation, an institution, a church, a community, an individual begins parading sin, judgment is inevitable. The highest pitch of ungodliness is when people glory in their iniquity. When sin is celebrated, that's the pinnacle of ungodliness. It gives me a picture that if you're someone who celebrates what the Bible detests as a Christian, you are at the height of your ungodliness. And judgment is not too far off. There's more. You want to listen to some more? Look at this. Verses 12 to 15. 
Why was the Lord taking away what Judah depended on? Look at this one. My people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your path. The Lord has taken away his place to contend. He stands to judge people. So let me just pause that forever. Look at this one. In this verse, right in verse 13, you would observe that God himself is both the prosecutor and the judge. If you come into a court and you understand and you realize that the prosecutor is the same person as the judge, you know that you are in trouble. It says here, God stands to prosecute, and here's what we have. Look at this one. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God. God issues a charge against the leaders of Judah. For what? Because they have not just failed to help the poor, but they have advanced themselves by robbing the poor. In short, if you look at this, if you go to the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy, it is very clear that God would say to the people, even to foreigners who are coming from a certain place, God is very clear in telling the people that if the widows and the poor among you, you have to be able to help them. What's worse here was that for Judah, they didn't just do that command. Worse is they took advantage of the poor and the widow. We are going to be a church who's going to be conscious of the needs of the poor people around us. We are going to be a church who's going to look after the welfare of the solo parents and those who are doing solo parenting. We can never reach to a place wherein we become insensitive to the needs of the poor among us, especially in the church. Why? Because it matters to the Lord. According to John Walvoord, he said, a materialistic, oppressive spirit was symptomatic of the leader's self-centeredness. Rather than seeing their leadership positions as service opportunities, they saw them as means of making money at the expense of others. Some of you here will become politicians in the future. And I pray that you will use your position to truly empathize and help the poor and not just as a campaign ad. And for us ordinary people, it doesn't mean that even if we do not have much, we cannot help other people with whatever we have. We can help other people. There's one more. I'll say this as early as now. Now I see here that God zeroes in on the women in Judah. He zeroes in on the women in Judah. Look at this one. Why was the Lord taking away what Judah depended on? Chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. So God first tells them, All right, okay, I'm going to take all of these things away from you. Because your women have become haughty. Haughty here simply means prideful. In our vernacular, you could talk about this this way. Kanang murag kinsa nga mata pobre. 
That's what happened to them. Because initially, prior to that, you've seen that they have accumulated so much wealth and they have become prideful because of their wealth. God here is not talking about their luxuries. He's talking about their attitude. Biglang yumabang. Wala nang pakialam sa mga mahihirap. Naging matapobre. Kung mga asta, akala mo kung sino. That's what's happening here. And not to flatter you, Victor, you do magadi people, but I realized that I believe God has worked in the lives of many of you here that I don't see this as an issue in our local church. Amen? The sin of pride here sets the tone for the rest of their sins. Here are some of the things that God just detests among them. It says here, they walk with outstretched necks. Can you just picture that out? They walk with outstretched necks. Why is that so? Why would they do that? They would get inside the main hall. They would get into a certain place, the town place, the marketplace. They walk with outstretched necks. You know why? Because they want people to see the adornments on their necks. In short, here's what happened to them. They want to attract attention to themselves. It's like they would go to a certain place and they want to, with what they wear, with what they have, they want to commend everyone with words like, look at me and look at what I have. I realize that this can manifest in many different forms, even in our time right now. Sometimes it can manifest in the way we dress as Christians. It can manifest in the way we dress, the way we do things. And would you allow me to just say this plainly? If you are a Christian, can you please dress modestly? Well, I'm not just talking to the women, I'm also talking to the men. I have just talked before the pandemic, I was talking with some guys in the church who wear short pants, like, short pants mo parang mini skirt na. I mean, anong habul mo dyan? Ang tanong dyan, ba't ganyan yung suit mo? What do you show too much skin for? I mean, what's showing the cleavage for? What's the bikini for? What is it for? Just think with me for, what is it for? Let me answer that for you. It's for one thing. It's for attention. You want attention. You want eyes to be on you. This can manifest even in our social media. Look at this. Do you realize that you don't have to be an artist to have a billboard? You traverse through EDSA, you see different kinds of billboards. Oh, I see Piola Pascual. Sino pa ba yung mga favorite yung artista before? Kasi iba naman yung time ngayon. Yung mga Jerry Craval. <laughs> iba sa inyo, yung kailangan. Sino yun? <laughs> but in our time right now, I realized, Rian and I were talking about this and Rian told me that if you look at our time right now, we all have our own billboards. In a sense that we have our social media, you don't have to be called on by an advertising company to have your own billboard. You can have a huge following based on your social media. The question for us is this. Now that you have your own quote-unquote billboard, what do you flaunt on your billboard? What do you endorse on your billboard? 
What do you put up on your social media? What do you tell people about yourself? What do you show the people around there? Um, what do you, ito, I think here's the question. What do you want to project that you're cool? That you're well-to-do? This plant should be here. As I do this, it has to be here. My coffee should face this way so that people can see. What do you want to project? What do we want to project? That we're cool? That we're richer? That we're well-to-do? I'm not saying that those things are sins, but my question first is this, your text message. Try to review your text messages to your friends. Try to review your IG stories, your my day. What does it promote? What is the message of your quote-unquote billboard? Does it feel like it is promoting Christ or promoting yourself? Let me funnel it down to this one question. If you only have one message to tell the world, what would be that message? Sometimes, social media harness our insecurity, feeds our insecurity. Our sense of significance are taken from these things instead of what God thinks about you solely from His Word. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks. Look at this one. Glancing wantonly with their eyes. You know what it means? It simply means that they are flirting with their eyes. They use their eyes to flirt with people. And God detests that. He gives us a picture that he isn't honored if maginigata. Most especially, of course, when someone flirts with someone who's married. Mincing along as they go. You know what this means? Here's the short definition of this. Nagpapakyut. They were trying to hide who they really are by mincing along as they go. In short, pakitang tao. Yung bang parang nag-iibang anyo pag may lalaki sa paligid. Kausap niya yung mga girlfriends niya. Ah! Tapos dumating yung crush. Huy, alam mo. Praise the Lord. This happened to me. Biglang naging demure. Anong nangyari? It's not the real you. I don't know. Do you realize that I'm just reading what we have here? I'm just explaining these things. But guess what? Later on, you will love the judgment of the Lord. I promise you that. If you're listening to this, you feel like, ouch! Ako yun, ako yun. Kung ikaw yun, guess what? May surprise ako sa'yo mamaya. Edward Young, in his commentary, the book of Isaiah, he says, when the women are wholly vain and self-centered, the cancer of moral decay is truly consuming the nation's heart. Proper adornment and true beauty in women should be a reflection of the glory of God. When women cultivate and cherish beauty only for itself, they are infringing upon and detracting from the glory and beauty that belong to God. Here's a rundown of what happened. Why was the Lord taking away what Judah depended on? First one, their words and actions did not honor God and they were proud of it. They were parading their sins. Their leaders oppressed the poor. Their women were consumed with vanity and conceit. So here's the next question. What has God got to say about this? So what are the thoughts of God? A while ago was the judgment of God. We jumped straight to it. So what are the thoughts of God? We find it here. Look at this. Because of those several reasons, we have verse 9. It says here, Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. 
Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Verse 11, look at this. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them, for what his sins have dealt out shall be done to him. In short, if you look at verse 9 to 11, it gives us a picture that they deserve their punishment. They deserve their judgment. But I want you to look at these words forever. Look at verse 10 for a while. There's a glimmer of hope that we find in verse 10. Because it's verse 10, sandwiched between verse 9 and verse 11, that talks about their judgment. In verse 10, God talks about righteousness. Look at this one. He says, Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Gives me a picture that there was a group of people who were righteous among them. Take a lang. I thought, Archie, there's no one righteous. It's true. No one can do or achieve righteousness because righteousness is something that is achieved for us and given to us. So it's not like, oh, uh, outstretch next. Okay, I'm going to remove this. I'm going to burn this. I'm going to throw this so that I will become righteous. Eh, no, that's not the point. That's restitution after repentance. You don't jump straight to restitution, throwing away these things. Why? Because if the heart is not dealt, you'll still end up buying all of these things. You'll still end up saying these things, doing these things. You'll still end up oppressing the poor. So righteousness is something that God gives to us, imputes to us. The biblical definition of that is this. Righteousness is something we receive by faith, imputed to us by God as we are justified in His Son, then imparted to us by God as we are sanctified by His Spirit. Look at this one. This is where it becomes so beautiful. Don't you just love God's Word? Come on now. This is where it becomes beautiful. This righteousness is actually demonstrated in the next chapter. In Isaiah chapter 4, verse 4, it says here, The Lord will wash the filth from beautiful Zion and cleanse Jerusalem of its bloodstains with hot breath of fiery judgment. So here's what I want us to understand. It is God who makes us righteous. Amen? In short, at the end of the day, it is God who washes us clean. He washes us clean. That's what the verse says. Here's the question now. How will God wash us clean? Guess what, friends? How does God wash away our sins? It says here, through the hot breath of the fiery judgment. What? You wash me clean with your fiery judgment? Now, I don't know with you because if I look at the word hot breath of fiery judgment, I feel like every time we talk about judgment, it is something that destroys. Isn't it? Every time we think about the judgment of God, we feel like if I'm being judged by God, I'm being destroyed by God. It says here, with the hot breath of fiery judgment. But the verse clearly tells us that the manner in which God cleanses us is through His hot breath of fiery judgment. What does it mean for the Lord? Judgment is how He cleanses us. Ang problema sa atin, allergic tayo sa word na judgment. Pag may sinabi sa atin, sasabihin natin, Uy, judger! 
When someone corrects you, napaka-judgmental yun naman sa church. You don't realize that judgment is actually biblical. And God will use judgment to cleanse you. That's what we have here. I want you to understand how beautiful this is. It gives us a picture then that you hear the word being preached like we did today. I am sure that many of you, oftentimes, you feel like you are being judged by the word being preached. Have you ever felt that way? Come on now. You are being judged by the word being preached here. What does it mean? You have to rejoice because it simply means that if you feel judged, God is cleansing you. When you feel judged, which is uncomfortable, it gives us a picture that now, guess what? It's the grace of God over your life. Meaning to say, He's washing you clean. That is what it means. That's why we rejoice over a sermon instead of being offended with, I think He's talking, I'm not even talking about you. Perhaps the Spirit is talking about you because He wants to clean you. gives us a picture that we have to rejoice when you're judged because that is what? The sanctifying work of God. So, what kind of offense the word the judge? What kind of mamon? Don't be too onion skinned in the church. Oh, I feel like it's judging me. No! Well, if that person is judging you, true enough, if the word of God is judging you, it is actually for you. It's cleansing you. I want to be more specific with this. Last Sunday, when I was preaching, I did mention about a low turnout of replies from the parents in the church when we started asking them about the victory groups for their kids. Out of 120, only 10 responded. And I did tell you that I don't think it's good, right? I did tell everyone it's not good. Guess what? A few days after, even right after the preaching, people were texting us. And just last week, we have 18 registrants for our victory groups in kids' church. Let me tell you something. It's a beautiful thing. You felt judged and you do something about it. Meaning to say, God judged you and He has cleansed you. And now you want to come clean and do something about it. That's the beauty of a tender heart. And I want to commend you for that, parents. If you're listening right now, you're one of those who stepped out and did something about the situation. I truly commend you for that because that's the thing that we want to happen. That every time we preach here, you do something about it. It doesn't remain as a concept, as a principle in the Bible, but you act it out. It's a beautiful thing in the church. 18 registrants for kids' church. It tells me that, all right, if this is the case, we don't sulk over what happened, that people were not responding. That's not the point. The point here now is that what are we doing about this? When Mav preaches here, when Tom preaches here, whoever preaches here, as long as the Word of God is preached, the next question for us now is what are you going to do about it? Judgment is a beautiful thing. Look at this. I did mention that judgment brings cleansing. So here's the next question, and this is the last, I promise you. How does judgment bring cleansing? Here's how it happens. In God taking away something in particular. In this case, verses 1 down to verse 7, verses 17 down to verse 26. He was cleansing them. He was judging them. He was cleansing them. So the manner at which 
God was cleansing His people. He was purifying them. As was how? He was removing the essentials and non-essentials. You know why? Because the fire of the Lord's judgments cleanses us by melting away our worldly dependencies for us. Trust Him alone. It's like God is saying, Hey, isn't it I am your God? Isn't it that I am your provider? Isn't it that I am the object of your devotion? Isn't it that I love you? Isn't it that you told me that you love me? Isn't it that we are the ones who are in the covenant? How come you're doing this? How come you're so engrossed with this? How come your time is consumed with everything that you see on social media? How time your time is consumed by embracing all of these things? Here's the thing. I'm going to judge you by doing this. I'm going to cleanse you by removing all of these things. So that what remains is ultimately yours. And that is myself. God is the one who is infinite. Amen? He's the one who is eternal. He's the one who is indestructible. He's the one who is unchanging. Every single thing that we find in verse 1 down to verse 7, in verse 17 down to verse 26 is the exact opposite of who God is. In fact, God promises it's going to shake the heaven and the earth so that what cannot be shaken will remain. How does this relate to us? being salt and light. Some of you might be wondering, okay, why are we calling this salt and light? I was also wondering why. But why are we calling this salt and light? You know what's common between salt and light? They're both produced by intense heat. Salt is produced through the heat, through evaporation, through the intense heat of the sun. Light is produced through photons and atoms and thereby producing light. In the same way, I want us to understand that as salt and light, the property of salt and the property of light are produced by intense heat. We become salt and light to the world around us as a result of the intense heat of judgment in our lives. You're able to better minister because you yourself have been judged. You yourself have been cleansed by God. So every time you come here, Every single Sunday, every time you get into the Bible, you do your quiet time, you receive the Word of the Lord, meditate on it. You know why? You let the Word of God melt away your earthly dependencies. And by doing so, you become salt and light to the world around us. Amen. You just heard a message from Victory Dumaguete. For more messages like these, or to access other resources, please visit victorydumaguete.org or like our page on Facebook.